One of the, um, one of the challenges associated with preaching or public speaking generally, I guess, is following what comes immediately before. And I'm just conscious of uh, following what's come immediately before today. And I guess I haven't really got any ground to complain and probably no one to complain to either. We're going to go back to the book of Acts today and uh, hear what God's got to say to us through his word. But let me just start with a story. Um, back many years ago when I was uh, training as a school teacher, the first uh, learning I did after I left school, I had to find a way of putting petrol into the tank of my car every week and so I became a professional football umpire. Now that sounds really exciting until I tell you that I was a professional football goal umpire which basically meant wearing one of those dorky white lab coats, which they used to wear in those days, a, a white hat, uh, black pants and football boots so that you didn't fall over. And then standing in the cold and the wet and the wind uh, right through winter. Uh, and for most of the time, you know, the play was elsewhere in the ground. Occasionally it would get exciting when it came up to my end. And on occasions it became really exciting, especially if uh, the ball went through and it was a close call. Now let me just tell you kind of how it worked. On lots of occasions, the decisions were dead easy. You know, the ball would go right through the middle of the goals or they'd go right through uh, between the uh, behind post and the goal post. And, you know, players would actually help with some advice in those times. You know, the player would say, oh yeah, good goal, Macca, good goal. When in actual fact, I was over here and found the ball had gone over. The, just being ever so helpful, I guess, those people. It got really exciting uh, if it was actually a close call. And it got really, really exciting if it was a close call in a close match. And I had a few of those and I remember some of those. Because in those moments, if the ball was sailing close to the post and the decision was either a goal or a behind and you had to make that call, you could be sure that there were players who were going to give you lots of helpful advice out of the goodness of their hearts, of course. And no matter which decision you made, there would be some who would graciously explain their displeasure and, uh, and take issue with the decision that I made. And to be honest with you, um, generally when they explained their displeasure, they only had a vocabulary of about three words. Three words they would kind of spit at me that this uh, eminence of anger would come. And, uh, and, you know, I was training as a school teacher and at the time I lamented the, uh, the failure of the education system that had meant that they only had three words that they knew how to use. But as I've kind of reflected on it, I thought there's actually something quite, um, quite remarkable by the, uh, the fact that they were able to use those three words in the same sentence in every possible type of grammar, adjectives, verbs, nouns, adverbs, a whole lot. And so maybe, maybe it was me that had some learning to do. And even though there were times when the initial decision would infuriate the players, uh, there was another thing that I could do that absolutely sent them spare, and that is this. No matter how angry they got, no matter how vehement they were in expressing their, um, their anger or their disappointment or their concern about my eyesight, um, I would remain totally impassive. Totally impassive. Now, I can't demonstrate quite what that looks like here as we're recording it, but I would look through them 
So you can imagine a player who's right in your face, spewing forth both uh, language and spittle, uh, not allowed to touch you, mind you, because that would have been a reportable offence. And I would just go about my business. I wouldn't smile. I wouldn't blink. I wouldn't, I wouldn't scowl. I wouldn't growl. I wouldn't respond. I would just look through them and go and get the flags and wave the flags and record the score. And it drove them nuts. And I like to think it was actually a demonstration of grace on my part in that I didn't respond to their anger. And I like to think it was also uh, an illustration of the power that I had because ultimately the decision was my decision. And once that decision was made, there was nothing that, that anybody could do, none of the players that could change that decision. Grace and power. Now, it's not a great illustration of grace and power, which is what I want to talk about with you today as we come back to the book of Acts, because we see in Stephen, a man who is identified in the scripture by Luke, who wrote this book, as a man of grace and power, a man who was infilled with God's grace and filled with God's power. I want to talk about that because in this passage, and if you've had a chance to read it, you'll appreciate this, we see a gradual shift in public opinion in the early church's context, away from a time where the church uh, enjoyed the support of the community to a time where there was persecution. And one of the questions that uh, had to be addressed was, how do we maintain a posture of grace and power in that context? And Stephen does that in the manner in which he responds when he is challenged before the Sanhedrin. We're going to look at uh, what evidence there is in this passage to, uh, to demonstrate that. As I said earlier this, in this service, this passage is a long passage. There's something like 75 verses for us to read. So we're not going to read all of the verses. Again, if you've not read them, you might like to pause for a moment and just read them through together with those that you are with, just to give you the broader context. There's so much in this passage, so much that we could say. It's probably worth two or three sermons, but we're not going to do that. Uh, but we are going to read some of it now. I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 8 through to verse 15, and we'll pop those verses up on the screen so that you might um, follow with me. And it starts from this point. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cecilia and Asia, sorry, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom, the spirit, that is God's spirit, gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting there 
in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's a curious verse, isn't it? A face like the face of an angel. Although Stephen was not one of the original apostles, it's clear from this text and it's explicit in the text that he was a man filled by the Spirit of God. And there have been some who've argued through history that it was only the original apostles who were filled by the Spirit to perform miraculous signs and wonders. This uh, text would actually demonstrate that's not the case. This uh, would say to us actually that the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit is available to all faithful Christians. And yet despite his outstanding qualities as a man who had been selected to be amongst those who uh, were filled with wisdom and the Spirit, Matt spoke about that last week, his ministry actually stirred up quite some opposition. Luke doesn't tell us what it was that Stephen was saying that caused the opposition. We have to kind of read a little bit behind the text to understand that. We presume that he was speaking about the ongoing role of the law and the ongoing place of the temple in Christian religion and the new uh, movement that Jesus had started. And we assume that because the accusers from what was known as the synagogue of the freedmen brought that charge against him, that he's speaking against God and that he's speaking against Moses, the law and the temple. It's interesting that uh, Stephen, as a non-Jew, he was a a Grecian Jew, a a guy, a Hellenist from outside Israel, was probably not that much dissimilar to those from the synagogue of the freedmen. These were not uh, uh, Israelite Jews. They were also from other parts of the empire. And so perhaps they were trying to assert their orthodoxy by standing up for the temple and for the law, whatever it was, we don't know, but we do know that um, they provoked quite a response. At first, they argued with Stephen. They engaged with him in debate and that would be healthy. They realised very quickly though that they couldn't stand up to the wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke and That would have been difficult for them. Their arguments failed. And so what did they do when their arguments failed? Well, they did what others through history will do and have done. They stooped to a smear campaign instead. They threw mud. And in throwing mud, mud often sticks. And it's very interesting too to reflect on this. You know, what did they do? They went and they engaged uh, some people who perjured themselves. They bribed some others, some other men, it says in the text, to, uh, to speak against Stephen. And that's rather interesting considering the fact that they were accusing Stephen of uh, undermining the law when in fact the law explicitly prohibits bribes and perjury. I don't know how they held that intention. While on the one hand they were trying to defend Jewish orthodoxy, they were prepared to actually undermine it themselves. Luke doesn't expose uh, much in that respect. His interest is actually more in what happened there from Stephen. But there is actually an observation that's worth making in respect of this, and that's this. Public opinion's a very fickle beast. You'll notice if you have a look back in the book of Luke, it's only a chapter or two back that the church enjoyed the favour of all the people. 
And in fact, when Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin just a couple of chapters earlier, it was public opinion that kept them safe. The Sanhedrin wanted to punish them, but were fearful of the response of the people. But as a result of the stirring up of these false witnesses, public opinion shifted. And so Stephen was exposed more dangerously to the, uh, to the Sanhedrin because he didn't have that protection of public opinion. Now, let me just say a word about public opinion. As, as a church leader and as church leaders, generally we work quite hard to protect the reputation of our church in our community. We seek to make sure that our witness is not sullied by silly or silly, unnecessary behaviour. Unfortunately, we're all too well aware of the consequences of that for the church broadly in our community. But let me just say, we do not uh, set out to, to make public opinion our aim or our goal because public opinion is very, very volatile. It can shift in a moment. Our desire as a church is to proclaim the gospel. And I had a friend once who said, we don't need to be offensive, the gospel is offensive. And there will be times, and I think there are times coming even in our context with the increasing secularisation of our society and the marginalisation of the church, when public opinion will shift against even what we do. And uh, if we have our, our minds set on being popular, we will lose the focus of the gospel. We will lose our impact in the community. We may be marginalised, uh, but that's okay. Public opinion is not what we seek. So let's talk about where we see the grace and the power in Stephen's response. Well, there's grace and power demonstrated all through. Let's start with grace. There's grace right at the start. For Stephen, at the first place when he responds, says to this gathered Sanhedrin, these learned men, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Straight away, Stephen is demonstrating grace to them by identifying himself with them, by acknowledging them. And perhaps one of the things we ought to just acknowledge too when we are engaging with people, even people who are contentious with us, people who are challenging us. We all stand before God as sinners. None of us have any uh, merit over others. We are all, in a sense, on a level playing field, even those who oppose us. We don't stand above them in some kind of uh, sacrosanct manner. We're all in need of God's grace. And Stephen demonstrated that by going into that place and acknowledging the commonality that they shared. There's grace in the manner that Stephen walked them through their history. Now, if you've read through this passage, you'll recognise it as a great rehearsal of Israel's history. And Stephen chooses each of those stories for a particular reason. If we had the opportunity, uh, it would be worth unpacking why. Uh, we just don't have the time to do that today. But he did it in a manner to take them on a journey to help them understand there's grace in that. There's grace. Actually, there's the grace of God hidden in Stephen's speech, which incidentally is the longest one in the book of Acts. Uh, the grace of God hidden in this speech. Uh, let me show you where. Um, when Stephen talked about Joseph, for instance, he made the point that Joseph, when he was there in control, in power, in authority in Egypt, his family came and they didn't recognise him at first. It was only the second time 
when they came that they recognised him. And Stephen points out in the same manner that the Israelites didn't recognise Moses as the one God was sending to save them. At first, they rejected him. And it was only later on at that second time when they recognised Moses as the one that God had said. And if Stephen was to say this explicitly, it might go something like this. You missed Jesus the first time. You saw him. You witnessed what he did, but you crucified him. But here's another opportunity, a second chance. I know some of you listening today will, uh, will be people who can testify to second chances. I was reading through a testimony. It was just a little blurb on the website of someone that we know from our church here, in fact, who was talking about how as a young person he grew up in the church, uh, made a commitment to the Lord, but then took a turn and went in a totally different direction for a number of years. And it wasn't until he realised his life had just fallen apart when uh, there just appeared to be no hope in the place that he found himself in, that he came back and God gave him a second chance. You see, God is the God of the second chance. And there's grace demonstrated time and time again by God in that he gives us a second chance. How many times, I don't know if you're like me, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've fallen over again. And he picks us up and he puts us back on our feet. The God of the second chance. And there's grace too in the manner that Stephen called out the Sanhedrin. If you have a look at uh, verses 51 to 53, you will find Stephen absolutely getting stuck into this Sanhedrin. He says to them, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, have, you who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Now I've got to tell you that when I read through Stephen's speech, I see the argument being developed and I think, you know, you've almost got them. And then he comes to this point. And he just unloads this, uh, this criticism. You stiff-necked people. That's not really calculated to get a, a, a soft response, is it? And yet there's grace in that even. Have you thought about that? There's actually grace in telling the truth. The peacemaker in me wonders whether if Stephen had been a little more gracious, he might have won his argument. I don't think he would have because, again, he was filled by the Holy Spirit. God gave him the words, which is what Jesus promised. Whenever you go before the councils, you know, don't worry, I will give you the words to speak. And it's pointless to speculate on whether it might have been different because, obviously, it's not different. But here's the point. Being a a person of grace, demonstrating grace does not mean ignoring error. It doesn't mean putting our heads in the sand when truth is being challenged or when untruth is being propagated or proclaimed. Being a person of grace or being gracious does not mean failing to call out error. Walking the road of grace doesn't mean calling out what is obviously wrong. Now, Equally, being a person of grace 
doesn't mean pointing out everything that you see in the church or every fault that you see with someone else. That's actually being obnoxious. Grace is not about being a bully or deliberately offensive, but grace will challenge beliefs or opinions when they have shifted from the gospel, when they are outside the parameters of truth. I exercised grace when I disciplined my children. They may not agree, but it was actually a gracious act to bring correction. I exercise grace when I help a brother address something ungodly in his life. It would be ungracious of me to ignore obvious sin. It would be ungracious of me to allow people just to do whatever they liked when I know it would be harmful to them. And it's... Uh, it's uh, Reminding me, of course, of a story I've told a couple of my colleagues um, just recently of an occasion when I walked down the street uh, one lunchtime, not here, in another city, and there was a, a Hindu lady doing some street evangelism. I thought, I'll go and talk to this person graciously. I can do that. And so I went up to her and I asked her you know, what she was uh, proclaiming or what she was offering and she was delighted, you know, someone come to talk to me. She's trying to give out her pamphlets and most people are doing what most people do, just ignore her. But here's someone who wants to talk to me. And so we engaged in a conversation and of course in the process of the conversation it became clear that we were on different planets when it uh, came to what we believed and I was starting to challenge what she was believing, exposing some of it and asking questions. She didn't appreciate it. I did it graciously, but she didn't like it. And it didn't take much time at all for that conversation to degenerate to the point where she was demanding that I go away because I was challenging her and probably stopping her from reaching others, which is partly why I was doing it. But her response was not good, even though I had approached it with much grace. And Stephen experienced a similar response. Gracious though his actions had been, the reaction of the Sanhedrin was to stone him. And even in this we see the grace of God at work because as a result of that persecution, as a result of that shift in public opinion, the church was spread and God's gospel, the gospel of Christ, went out to places that it had not been. Well, I've spoken about grace. What about power? Well, of course, here in the book of Acts, we can't go past or do better than to reflect on the power of the Holy Spirit that is demonstrated even here in Stephen's life. In chapter 7, verse 5, Stephen was identified as a man who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was an ordinary believer who was a man of deep faith and, uh, and filled by the Holy Spirit. The evidence of that is seen in chapter 6, verse 8, for he was known to perform miraculous signs and wonders. In chapter 6, verse 15, it was noted that Stephen's face shone like an angel. That verse prompts me to think of Moses, who when he came down from the mountain, his face was radiant. He'd been in the presence of God and Stephen was there in that presence of God, indicating the presence of God in his ministry. And when we're when we read of the account of Stephen being put to death. Again, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and saw the glory of God and of Christ Jesus. And I believe that God wants all of us to have faith like that. And gosh, I aspire to be like that. It's a challenge. 
And our immediate response might be along the lines of, well, I just, I just can't be like that. I'm never going to be like that. I could never speak in the manner that he did. I couldn't perform miraculous signs and wonders like he did. I couldn't stand up to the persecution that he did. But here's something really important to remember. Stephen's faith was no different to that which all Christians have, but it was exceptional to the extent to which he trusted Christ. And that's the invitation for us, isn't it? His faith is no different to ours, but it was exceptional in the degree to which he was prepared to trust Christ. And it's only when we appropriate the power of the Spirit in our lives that we can have faith that is expressed like that. One of the things that I used to do from time to time in our evening service, for those of you who are familiar with that, is we would stop and we'd just throw a few questions around, sometimes in the middle of the sermon, sometimes right at the end. I've got three for you today you might like to consider as we conclude. We'll just pop them up on the screen and uh, if you've got the opportunity, if you're with other people, you might like to talk about this. The first one is this. Can you think of an occasion where you have been given a second chance by somebody close to you? You know, in interpersonal relationships, we constantly need forgiveness and grace. Can you think of a time where you've experienced that and might like to share that with those that you're with? The second question, perhaps it's an opportunity for someone that you're with to share a little of their story, their testimony. In what ways has God given you a second chance? And a question for everyone to reflect on, how is the grace and power of God being experienced in your life today? Because God wants to have you experience his grace and power. God longs for you to know that. And the invitation in this passage is to walk in there with hands open and receive God's grace and God's power. We'll pray. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It challenges us. It builds us up. It grows us in Christ and we pray that might be our experience as we reflect on this passage. We thank you that you are living and active and use your word to teach us and we invite you to continue to do that through our service today. In Jesus' name, amen.